Uh, Philippians 2, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Holy Spirit, I ask right now for a division between soul and spirit, even in this word, and for ears to hear, Lord, what you are saying to us in season, not by might, not by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. And so I pray, Lord, we would be spiritually minded people and receive from the Spirit words that are spirit in life. I pray that we would no longer be carnal. I pray even now, Lord, just transform us by the renewing of our minds, by your precious word that was sent to us to heal us. Pray for all distractions to be lifted, and I just pray for these next few minutes we have together here today for every heart to be stirred by your word, Lord, that's spoken here today. Not mine, but your word spoken into every heart. Whether it's something that's actually said out of my mouth or something you speak into their ears separately, I pray every heart be stirred this morning by your word. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing by, finish it for me, the, the word of God. And so we must be a people that live by faith and not by sight, meaning we must be a people that are moved by and responsive to the ever-present word of the Lord in our life. So we want our ears to be awakened to his word, whether that's a preacher speaking the word, whether that's the Holy Spirit whispering into our ear or something else. We want to be awakened to his word in our life. Joanne read this morning up here during our time of waiting on the Lord, Ephesians 1.3, that he thanks God for all of the spiritual blessings that are located for us in the heavenly realms. And we have access, Romans 14 says, to the kingdom of God, which is righteousness and peace and joy in a location called the Spirit. Righteousness Peace and joy in the Spirit is the kingdom of God. All the blessings of God are put in a place called the heavenly realms for us, which means it's required of us to press through the earthly realms and press through the veil to get to the other side where the kingdom of God is, where the blessings of God are. Actually, I'm pointing out like this. It's more like pointing in like this. God has deposited them within us. He has put the kingdom of God within us. But there is a shell. Yes? Anybody know what I'm talking about? There is a husk on the outside of that seed. And so there's a requirement for breaking to happen so that we might enter in and enjoy the sweet fruit inside of that seed. And so the Lord sends your favorite subject and mine suffering. Everybody say, yay, suffering. All right. The Lord sends it like the scalpel. He sends it like the divorce attorney to help divorce us and separate us from the love of the world. He sends it like the scalpel to cut away the flesh that we might go in, because of the suffering, we might enjoy that which was won for us as and is already inside of us. Because seeds do not take root and bear fruit on pillows in the air conditioner. 
They take root and bear fruit in the compressed place, in the hidden place, in the dark place, in the place of death. And so we have as our template precious Jesus. Precious Jesus, who is called in Isaiah 53 the son of suffering, the suffering servant. He is, Peter is really, the, the book of 1 Peter is really the epitome of the treatise on suffering in the New Testament. It's written specifically for us to help understand suffering. And so he says in, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he's like, listen, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't it so prevalent in the culture that when we go through suffering, people are like, how could this be? It's just so out of the blue. That's crazy to me, especially how insulated we are from suffering here. It seems so abnormal and strange that we should suffer. And Peter says, stop thinking that way. Suffering is normal because our template, our model Jesus, said it was going to be normal. Suffering is not normal in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because revelation and love and adoration and affection for the Lord abound in the cool of the day. Suffering is necessary now post the Garden of Eden. Why? Because we invited sin that causes a husk over our hearts. It causes death. It brings a hardness. And so suffering must be used to cut that away, to reveal the good stuff that's inside. So Peter says, do not think it's strange, but rejoice in so much as you're now participating in the sufferings of Christ Jesus. So now we get to Philippians chapter 2. Famous, famous Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships, verse 5, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature and essence God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Listen, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Not just death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The principle here is the one who went the lowest the one who became a worm, Psalms 22, he says, now has been exalted to the highest place. The one who went the lowest has now been exalted to the highest. And so now we have the principle for the standard of glory in heaven. The one who chooses to be the lowest will be promoted as the highest in heaven. The one who chooses humility will be the very nearest to the throne of God in heaven. That's the principle for you and me. That's the one way, listen to me, that's the one way glory is measured in heaven is by humility. 
and by embracing our own death. Did you know that? It has nothing to do with talents and abilities. It has nothing to do with how many people you want in the kingdom or how many people you healed. It has nothing to do with anything except becoming like Jesus in his suffering, humbling yourself that you might be exalted. Glory. And so the principle here is that life is born out of death. There is no resurrection life. There's no Pentecost. There's no breakthrough without first Calvary. And we all know that. But it's absolutely essential to be reminded. How do I die to myself? Well, I've got good news for you. It's already happened on the cross of Christ. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The work of death has already been accomplished in Christ Jesus. But as you, and as especially I know, I don't always see the humility of Christ and the death of Christ worked out through my life. In fact, a lot of times I see pride. I see myself. I see a lack of humility. And so there's, an, there's a difference between impartation and manifestation. I just, reading, uh, I just finished reading with my brother Jacob Rohr this wonderful book by Andrew Murray called Humility. Read it if you want to be made sad for a season when you're reading it about your lack of humility. It's such a good like drop of chlorine in the pool. It's so helpful for me. But he says this, his life, Christ's life is imparted to us through his death. But his life is enjoyed or manifested in us through ours. The life of Christ was imparted to us through his glorious death on the cross. But his life within us is only enjoyed through our death to self. And so he says, take every opportunity when the humbling circumstance comes. When it comes time to confess that you lied. When it comes time to say, I'm sorry, I, I lashed out in anger. When it comes time when that irritating person continues to prod you and poke you to say, what are you revealing in me? Take every opportunity to embrace the cross and humble yourself, he says. And then watch how the life of Christ is manifested in you. He says that death is the highest proof of humility's perfection. He calls humility the bud and he calls death the blossom within the blood, the bud. Humility is the blood of the bud of spirituality, but death is the completion of it. And so this is why we have Hebrews 10. Go there with me. Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, rather. This helps us understand why Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5 say what they do. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's us. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. This was fitting in God's mind. He's bringing us to glory. 
Well, he made the template, the pioneer of our salvation, completely perfect through what he suffered. What do you think he's doing with y'all and me? He's preparing us to rule and reign someday. I visited my kids' co-op this last Tuesday, and I said, hey, kids, listen, by a show of hands, how many of you started your life off in your mommy's tummy? They all giggle, laugh, raise their hands. I said, how many of you remember those long, hard nine months of waiting to be born? Their mamas do, but they don't. I said, why is that? Because those nine months in the womb were just, just like that. You barely even remember being a baby. Why? Because you were only being prepared in the womb for the hopefully 70, 80, 90 years of life ahead of you. Meaning it was such a small, minuscule part, you don't even remember it. It's like a dream. And we are in this little womb of eternity being prepared for trillions of years. And we will rule and reign depending on what we do with the time that we have here. Depending on what we do to let his life be formed in us. I promise you, the second we cross over that threshold, we'll say, I would have given up a thousand times more than I gave up just to be close to him. And so the suffering here is used to prepare us for ruling and reigning there. Glory to God. It's such a small little tiny fraction of a second compared to eternity. Let's make the most of it. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, Starting in verse 8, he says this, Son, though he was, Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Suffering teaches us to learn to obey. Suffering divorces us from the love of this age. Lizzie and I went through a little taste of our baby suffering, as you guys might know, a couple of months ago. We were in the PICU, problems, doctors saying all kinds of crazy stuff to us, drama, trauma, chaos abounding. Our hearts were just pounding and exploding. God help us, God help us. I look up at the screen in the PICU, and there's the 49ers playing football, a game I was just watching before we got, had to be rushed to the hospital by ambulance. And I thought, in a split second, who cares about that? Who could possibly care about that right now? And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You lose the loved one. You go through the trial financially or physically, and then you hear people talking about trivial stuff. And you're not angry at them, but you're just like, do you not understand that doesn't mean anything? It's pointless. Have you guys ever experienced this before? Well, that's what suffering does. It allows us to see for a split second the bigger picture from God's perspective and say, oh, all this stuff, like Paul says, is like dung. It really means nothing. It helps life get really simple really fast. Yay, suffering! We're scared to death of it. We try to avoid it at all costs. And Peter says, don't be surprised. It's not strange. Rather rejoice that you can now participate in the sufferings of Christ Jesus. Woo! So why am I saying this today? Well, this is part six 
on intimacy with the Father that we started at the beginning of the year. Paul says, you don't have to flip there, but remember in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know him. I want to know Christ. More than anything, Paul's like, I want to know, yes, the power of his resurrection. And the other P word, the participation in his sufferings. To be made like him in his death. There is a fellowship and a union and a knowing of Christ that we can only know through suffering. And we should therefore not be afraid. Because when we go through the fire, who's there with us? Yes, he is. When we go through the water, who's there with us? Anybody been through a traumatic event in life, a death, a loss? Isn't it true his peace that passes understanding meets you there? In a strange way, it hurts so bad. But, oh, it's like, I never knew Jesus the way I knew him before, until the suffering. What is that? What's well, the fellowship and sharing with his, him in his sufferings? And it's beautiful. What's the principle? Well, the deepest valleys mean the highest mountain peaks are on the other side. And those the Lord intends to exalt in this life and in the life to come, he takes through the deepest sufferings and death. Say it one more time. Those the Lord intends to exalt, whether in this life or in the age to come, he takes through the deepest trials and sufferings. Be encouraged, those of you who are in trial and suffering, especially the kind that won't let you go. It just stays there. It hangs on you. You're hemmed in. You're being prepared for glory beyond your imagination. Hebrews 6 says we must become imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. Faith is tempered with patience. I read this week in Streams in the Desert. The blacksmith hammers out the metal. Well, what does he do with it? The sword. He puts it in the fire. He heats it. He takes it out. He beats it and he hammers it, and then he takes it out and plunges it into the ice-cold water. And then he does it again, and again, and again. And if it falls to pieces, and if it will not accept the tempering process, he throws it in the scrap heap. But if, even though it's yelling and saying, this hurts, I don't know how much longer I can make it, but if it stays in there, if it hangs in there, what does he do with that piece of steel? He makes it into the beautiful sword that it's meant to be used for. Do not give up. Do not lose your faith in the suffering, he says. It will not last forever. You're being prepared, church. Preaching to myself. Do not lose heart in doing good. In proper season you will reap if you do not give up hope. Sainthood springs out of suffering. One author has said, before lunch, I want to finish with a quick story. One story about a man named Haman. He-man is maybe another way to say it. And I want to paint you a picture of this guy's life because I never knew this. And I was studying this two or three weeks ago and it just gripped my heart. I've been waiting for the day to say it. And today is the day. Haman. Anybody remember Samuel, the prophet, priest, who anointed David? Well, his grandson's name was Haman. 
1 Chronicles 6.33. Here are the men who served together with their sons, Kohathites, Haman, the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. Samuel's grandson. He's a musician. He's known for his musical ability. He was leading the musicians in the temple in praise and worship. He's also known and he's compared to Solomon as one of the wisest men of the East. So in 1 Kings chapter 4, it talks about how wise Solomon was. And then you want to be on the list of men compared to Solomon if you're a great man from the East in wisdom. And it says that he was so wise, almost so wise, he was even wiser than Haman. It's incredible. It uses him as one of the top five guys in the East known for their wisdom. Well, what else was he known for? In 1 Chronicles chapter 25, he was known as being a prophet and a seer. It says in verse 1 that David appointed Haman, Asaph and Haman, Jedithan, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. He was a prophesying musician. And then it says in verse 5, all these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer. He's a prophesying musician, and he was the guy that got the intel from heaven to speak to David. Now listen to this. This is all the preface for what he was really known for. It says, all these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer. They were given to him through the promises of God to exalt him. God gave Haman 14 sons and three daughters. 17. Which means he was wealthy. Because from experience can't feed a lot of kids. I'm not wealthy, but it takes some finances to feed a lot of kids. Trust me. Buy your eggs locally. I think the Gilberts have them for sale now since they're like $10 an egg at the store right now. He was a wealthy man. He was a prophesying man. He was highly gifted in musicianship. He was highly gifted in wisdom. And in this day and age, you were set apart if you had 14 sons and three daughters. Let me tell you what. He walked into any room he was at with his head held high. In fact, it gets better than that for Haman because it says all these men, all of his sons, were under the supervision of their father for the music in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, lyres, harps, for the ministry of the house of God. And Asaph, Jedithan, and Haman were under the supervision of the king. So you have David... Haman, and then Haman has all 14 of his sons that every day for their nine to five get to go to work with their dad ministering musically in the temple. What an amazing dude. Like, why has there not been a story written about Haman or a movie maybe? I don't know. He wrote one psalm. Haman got one psalm in the entire Psalter. And what type of psalm do you think a grandson of the illustrious Samuel would write? What type of a psalm would one of the top five wisest men in the world at that time write? What would a psalm of a wealthy, prosperous man write who knew the secrets of prophecy? 
What type of a psalm would a man with 17 blessed children write? And most importantly, what type of a psalm would a man who God said specifically he wanted to exalt write? God did those things to exalt him. What type of a psalm did Haman write? Well, let's look at it. It's 18 verses long. Psalm 88. We'll finish with this. Haman got one psalm, and it is called the saddest psalm in the Psalter. Of 150, it's the saddest one for a reason. Most psalms start off with something kind of bad, and they, end it, they finish with hope at the end. Well, Haman stole Paul Simon, or Simon, Paul Simon stole Haman's line. At the very end, he says, you've taken for me, my friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. That's how it finishes. No hope. Let's read this together. This is the guy, I just described to you the guy. This is what he wrote. The guy God wanted to exalt. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And then he dives right in. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You've overwhelmed me with your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've suffered and I've been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath, your angry heat has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood and they have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from me friend and neighbor and darkness is my closest friend. The writing is so similar to the book of Job. Many have postulated that Haman wrote the book of Job. One commentator says, a living death in God's hands will bear much fruit. This is how this psalm ends, and it's the only one that Haman wrote. What I love about this 
is we see on what I told you at the beginning of the story, all the mountaintops that this guy stood on. But you know that he had to go through the deepest, darkest valleys to do that. And he knew God, I promise you he did, like Job knew God at the end of his sufferings. I've heard of you with my ears, but Job said what? Now my eyes have seen you. He's got revelation that he didn't have before. I mentioned 1 Peter being the book on suffering. Well, he finishes the book with this thought. For those of you who are suffering, commit yourself to a faithful creator and continue to do good. Commit and continue. Give your heart to the Lord. Pour out your complaint and don't give up. And lastly, he says, and after you've suffered a little while, the Lord himself will strengthen you and establish you, making you strong and firm and steadfast because strength comes through the suffering. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to embrace and rejoice in how you're forming yourself in us. I pray no fear for death, sickness, loss, or suffering of any kind in this room. I pray, Elder, to equip that we would be a people like Jesus, the suffering servant, and we would embrace the opportunity to grow stronger in our faith and our love for you and our knowledge of you. I pray, Father, for a deepening fellowship with your heart, no matter what it takes for each one of us. I pray you'd make us strong and firm and steadfast and establish us in our faith that we would not fall away because of sufferings, but we'd actually go deeper, Lord. Reveal yourself to us and in us and through us. We pray a blessing over this food, this fellowship, Lord, as we break bread, we remember, Jesus, your broken body for us. We remember, Lord, we have life only because you gave us life, Lord. And so I pray that we would celebrate this here together today. In the name of Jesus, amen.